I'm Robin Morning, and this is Liberation Labs Radio, a podcast about experimental practices, generative storytelling, and radical love lessons guiding healers and carers toward anti-oppressive and liberatory healership, business, and relationship. This is a show where we will learn what it means to be mental health care providers, community healers, and cultural workers in an era that demands generative imagination and brave movement toward liberatory healing futures. Welcome back, everybody, to Liberation Labs Radio. I am thrilled today. Uh, Today is our season one roundtable discussion. I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. We are talking to Erica Woodland, Gabes Torres, and Aida Mandalay, all about abolition in mental health care. This conversation is just like all of the others in season one, a beginning, a start, a spark. And I hope that this episode sparks something within you. Just as uh, a reminder that this conversation marks the end of season one. I can't believe it. However, we do have some announcements at the end about some bonus episodes so that, that you will want to check out in between season one and two. So make sure to tune in all the way to the end so you can hear about that. All right. I'm not going to hold us up any further. Let's get started with this episode. Thank you all so much for being here today. Um, I just want to take a couple of moments for each of you to introduce yourselves to all of our listeners and to one another if you're not familiar with each other. Please let us know what your pronouns are, um, where you are joining us from, and also some descriptions for what folks may see on um, the camera for those who see any images or video clips of our time together today so that folks can have an idea of, of, of where we all are and what's going on and how we, how we are showing up today. I can kick us off. Um... As long as I'm not the first one speaking for everything, because I feel like that wouldn't <laughs> that wouldn't be my values. Um, but so, hi, my name is Aida. I use they them pronouns in English, ella and le pronouns in Spanish. Um, I was born in Puerto Rico, which are unceded Taino lands, also known as um, the lands of Boricán. I'm currently living in what's known as Boston, Massachusetts. So wanting to also acknowledge the wide variety of people that have lived here, including the Wampanoag, Massachusetts, and Nipmuc. Um, also a lot of um, amazing Black liberators and culture workers. Um, I also call a home in upstate New York. Um, I also call that space home in a sanctuary, and that is the land of the Asopas tribe of the Lenape people. Um, I'm a trauma-focused therapist that works virtually now, um, but technically I have an office at a place called The Meeting Point, which is a collective of practitioners that includes body workers. It's not just mental health folks. Um, I'm a circle keeper, a transformative justice and restorative justice practitioner, uh, and a sexuality organizer and educator. Um, So I do a lot of sort of micro work as well as macro work, and that's how I like it. I like to have the blend. 
Um, if you were looking at or perceiving me in any fashion, you would see that I'm a mid-sized fat person, light-skinned with some freckles and some you know, little beauty marks, short wavy brown hair with a side shave. I have a dangling hair wrap on one of my sides. Um, I have arched brows, brown eyes. I'm wearing a black tube dress. And as I usually say when I'm on Zoom, tragically de-enhanced glitter um, because the camera just doesn't capture it appropriately. I also put on my contacts this morning and my eyes are having opinions about that. So I am, my, there is wetness on my face. I look like I just had a good cry and I'm you know, gonna be living into that today. Um, behind me, I have light colored walls, many frame pieces of art um, depicting a lot of both real and imagined creatures and very importantly, a Puerto Rican flag. That's, that's me right now. Thank you so much. So great to have you here. Hey everyone, my name is Erica Woodland. I use he, him pronouns. I'm coming at you live and direct from the land of the Piscataway, Susquehannock and Nanticoke, also known as Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I am a black transmasculine person, um, long brown locks, sides are shaved, brown eyes. I'm wearing a green shirt and I'm in my home office in my basement. Um, in a very large open room with gray walls and I have a wooden screen behind me. Um, you know, I, I love to be in conversation with folks who are really trying to complicate how we practice together um, and center in healing and liberation. And I do lots of things. Um, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a facilitator, I'm a consultant and, and like Ida, I'm super curious about the intersection of micro and macro work um, because it's really important and it's really central to healing justice. Um, I'm also the founding director of the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network, and we are really out here trying to organize and politicize queer and trans BIPOC practitioners to offer up an alternative um, way to do this work that really is centered in intervening and transforming the medical industrial complex and also building out alternative strategies because we know that if we're going to be taken care of, that our people are the ones to do it. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So great to have you, Erica. Hi, folks. My name is Gabes Torres. My pronouns are she, they, and sha, um, which is the Tagalog um, pronoun. I am coming to you live from the Philippines, and it's 9.15 p.m. Um, <laughs> I am coming from a long day of, um, of organizing and teaching and meetings, so um, trying to rally and be present um, with y'all and with my body. I am a light brown skin Filipina femme um, with dark brown hair that's long. I have some bangs and um, dark brown eyes. I have a pink shirt. My background is uh, gray concrete walls, a huge clock, a white lamp, some framed um, pictures uh, with on top of a side table and some fake plants <laughs> for y'all. Um, I am a therapist, an organizer, a singer songwriter, and also a journalist, just like the folks here. I do a lot of work as well um, that aims to integrate trauma-informed work, um, specifically racial and migration trauma in um, clinical intervention, but also trying to make clinical um, contexts 
um, as Dr. Angela Davis would say, obsolete, um, because it's grassroots all the way. And the more that I do more work here in the global south, the more that feels um, important and um, feels like that's that's necessary in the work of liberation, grassroots and community led organizing. Um, and in the realm of abolition and transformative justice, I hope to do so in the context of global solidarity, specifically in the global south, and um, especially in the midst of so much that's happening globally. And I feel like uh, more than ever, we've awakened um, to just the interconnectedness of oppression and of freedom um, in this work. Um, also, I also do some um, journalism as well, which can be a very interesting field as a therapist, <laughs> um, but um, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a lot of fun to be able to hold these intersections of reporting um, and challenging what neutrality looks like in the world of reporting. So mm -hmm. that is Yes, yes. Oh, thank you so much um, for being here at such a late hour for you after such a long day. Um, and yes, please prioritize being with your, your body and what your body needs right now. Thank you for being here, Gabes. Um, I guess I will do a quick intro slash image uh, description for myself for folks. My name is Robin, pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm a Black biracial femme. Um, I am wearing a um, robin's egg color tank. Um, I have tortoise shell medium thickness frames, glasses frames on. I have um, short, dark brown hair with a side shave. Um, and yes, I need, I, I need a haircut. It's been a while. Um, and the, I have um, also light gray headphones on. And the background is um, a room with um, cube storage with some items in it, um, gray walls, um, and a white framed window. So <sighs> I am a um, former mental health therapist. I had a private practice um, in Colorado, which was the is the unceded and ancestral lands of the Arapahoe, Ute, and Cheyenne nations and peoples. Um, and I released myself from that work a couple of years ago and I'm doing, um, full-time work, working with other practices, um, individuals, different foreign types of healers and guides and mentors in our communities that are looking to figure out what does it mean to practice more liberatory care? Um, what are the, many experiments that we can do to bring healing endeavors back to the people and offer them back and kind of rescue them from this um, carceralized version of care and capitalized care. So much of the work I do is um, birthing imagination into, into life um, and making a lot of mistakes along the way and with each other and learning from those. So it's really beautiful work. Um, I also work to, with my own folks, my, my kin, um, we experiment around what is a, what is liberatory relationship? Um, before we work in structures and institutions, we, we experiment with practicing with one another, um, individually and in small, like our small, like kin groups that we have. Um, and I'm really interested 
lately, not, not on a intellectual level, but on a heart and soul level, what liberatory parenting looks like that feels the hardest for me. I'm a, I'm a parent and it is very, very challenging to uproot childism, um, and, uh, controlling and carceral and dehumanized parenting. It's so that's the challenge for me. So I'm very interested in that on a personal level. Um, I also am an artist. Um, I make intuitive art and have in the past dabbled in making personalized, um, oracles for folks, which is, which is fun. And I do a couple times a year because woo, that's exhausting. Yeah, so that's a bit about me and the work that I do. Um, and I was part of the Healing Justice cohort back in 2020, 2021, Erica. Thank you and the crew for putting that together. Ida, I think you were in that as well. Um, so yes, thank you. That was just wonderful to be in that place. Um together. And there's, you know, there's still a few of us that gather periodically and ask questions and check in and just enjoy, um, space and time together. So that was a, a very wonderful experience. All right. So I have a few questions that I would love to get to. And then I just want us to get into a flow of conversation, whatever feels right in this moment with our bodies and our spirits. Um, so this thing called abolitionist care, I know has so many different meanings for everybody. Um, and oh, most of the time, the meaning that we get from that, from or about abolitionist care comes from the folks in our lives and the folks that we have been introduced to through various forms of media, writing, teaching, oral histories. So I'm really curious about who um, and what um, have contributed to your um, sense of what abolitionist and liberatory care and honestly ways of being are. We don't have to keep it siloed to just providing care, but liberatory ways of moving through life and relationship. Um, what's your lineage? Who, who and what has taught you and brought you here today? And Gabe's, if you don't mind kicking us off, that would be wonderful. Thank you, Robin. The first thing or the first folks that came to mind really are my ancestors. And I know that that is, a, a, I mean, the ancestors who, um, who I do not know directly, but can feel um, have done a lot of care that had little to nothing to do with the state. Um, I could think about the most recent ancestor that I learned about, who is a, I can't remember how many greats, but maybe four great, 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 Grand Lola, um, who was a witch doctor um, or a babaylan in our language, who um, used ancient medicine, herbal medicine, and the guidance of um, pre-colonial spirits that be. Um, I, I say, these ancestors because I'm aware that abolition doesn't just have to do with the demolition of systems and ideology of the prison industrial complex and of carceral logic, but also of the, the existence or the presence of, of care and of safety and of medicine that, um, that are more community-led, that are um, more reliant upon neighbors. And so I um, 
I think about the ancestors who led kin, like um, systems, egalitarian systems of kinship, um, than of what is known to be public safety, so-called public safety right now. And I believe that a lot of the, the wisdom that guides me and my, my community members, my comrades, my co-organizers, um, a lot of that is ancient while also um, trying not to romanticize um, ancient structures of, 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 um, of existences as well, because they're still human. <laughs> um, and so what is it like to, to hold on to that uh, pre-colonial wisdom, ancient wisdom, um, while also uh, discarding the parts that are hierarchical that are still oppressive as well. Um, so I think about them. I also think about um, so many of the Black and Indigenous mentors and teachers um, who have not just taught me, but also I organized with back when I was in the so-called US. I spent a significant time um, in so-called Seattle, um, occupied Duwamish territory um, with folks who, uh, I worked with with regard to mutual aid networks, especially for the unhoused. Um, I, I there are so many, um, I suppose, like widely known abolitionist teachers that I could mention as well, like Miriam Kaba and Dr. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, and I also think about the ones who are necessarily hidden and shouldn't be um, well known because of state surveillance. And um, I pay homage to them and, um, and recognize their work that is necessarily hidden because of just how much they are a threat to the state. So those are the folks that I pay homage to. Yes, thank you. Erica, I'd love to hear about your lineage. Sure, thank you. So I come to this work by way of a lot of ancestral memory and, you know, the ancestors are super present in my life, in my house. <laughs> uh, they keep me up at night and I go to them frequently. Um, I first want to just call in and honor my mom, who's an ancestor, because I learned a lot from watching her care for two children as a single parent, um, as a Black woman in Baltimore. And I kind of saw in real time <laughs> the fuckery that is capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. I saw the intersections of that um, really clearly. And I saw her fight to protect and take care of her children without having any kind of support from the state and very little community support. And so that like ethics of care, I got really early on and, and I, it's part of the inheritance that I bring to my work. Um, another ancestor who's super present for me is Harriet Tubman. And, um, you know, being born in uh, the land of her birth and the land where she helped to free so many people, um, she is really a beacon for me around strategy, <laughs> around how we use medicine, how we, how we use land, um, how we use relationship to move towards collective freedom. Um, she's really a beacon for me around when we break the laws, when we collude with the state for freedom, like really the, there's a lot of nuance around um, her life and her work. Um, and in particular, the work that she was doing at the end of her life around providing radical care um, for sick, disabled and elder folks. Um, 
I also come to this work by way of two of my comrades, mentors, godparents, Dominique and Eddie Conway. Um, Dominique Conway, I met um, in the early 2000s doing some organizing in Baltimore um, around, around the war in Iraq. And through my relationship with her and organizing with her, I met Eddie Conway, who's a former political prisoner, former Black Panther. And um, the two of them really uh, <laughs> raised me up politically um, and also spiritually in a lot of ways. And because I consider myself part of the lineage of the Black Panther Party, their work has, has deeply shaped any conversation I had around abolition. Um, I had the privilege of going to one of the earlier critical resistance conferences um, in the early 2000s. I think it was, I was trying to think about this this morning. I think it was 2001 or 2002, um, but that was actually a requirement for a course that I took. And so I had kind of very early on in my political consciousness uh, access to a lot of the folks that have already been named who are trying to kind of change in the game around abolition. And so it's a, we're in a weird moment where 20 years later, I'm like, oh, we're really, we're really talking about this. Oh, okay. Because people literally were like, I don't, I, you're, I don't know where you think we're going to abolish these systems at, but it's not going to be here. Um, and so I do really want to just shout out um, a lot of those freedom fighters who were part of building out that space. Um, and finally, a lot of what I learned about abolition and care and the kind of care that is possible when the state um, has totally failed us is actually from working directly with incarcerated people. So um, in my early 20s, when I came back to Baltimore from college, I did a lot of work um, with folks in women's and men's institutions and really just saw in real time folks building out ecosystems of care, folks resisting the state inside of their care systems, um, and folks really trying to collaborate with folks on the outside around how to get free together. Um, and some of those were really defining moments in terms of how we sit in this tension of like, what does it mean to take this radical idea, this vision that many of our peoples have been fighting for for generations? How do we make that a reality in the context of prison itself? Um, and so I, I honor so many of those folks who <laughs> really extended grace to me as a young person who knew very little <laughs> trying to help them, to, who really actually gifted me a lot by just allowing me to witness the ways that they were doing this work without this language, uh, without support, you know, without um, a lot of the tools and resources we have today. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and from experience, I can pull from my own as well. Like, yep, working with certain folks, being in relationship with certain folks become um, such an integral part of lineage. Um, and I'm hearing that from both of you. So thank you, Ida. Yeah. Tell us about I your lineage. I love this question because in so many spaces that I've historically been in, this question is more about pedigree than actually honoring how we learn and the fact that we didn't come to anything by ourselves or in isolation. So I love it when this question gets asked in these spaces because it has such a different vibe than the, oh, but who do you know though kinds of questions. Um, I said this answer in a different panel and I will never stop saying it, I think. Um, my lineage the, the first part that I claim is the freaky queers lineage. 
Um, and those are the roots that I feel are the most independently sought roots that I, that I have. Um, because queerness was not something and transness was not something that in my household was celebrated, even acknowledged. And so as an adult, those are the things that I was like, okay, this is where I'm going to start digging. This is where I'm going to start embodying in a different way than what I was taught. Um, so that's usually why I start there. It feels very present and it feels like I had a lot of agency in being able to connect with that lineage eventually. Um, and I like to talk about the windy road to abolition because I, you know, if I look at old journals or if I think about things I said 15, 20 years ago, I'm like, oh, yikes, <laughs> we have evolved. And that's important to share with other people because um, I think sometimes we can, we can feel like these spaces get insular um, or they can be cliquish. And, oh, if you don't know what critical resistance is, like, clearly you're not dedicated. And, and I think all of us on this call are not using those frames. So I explicitly wanna invite any listeners to, to hold our comments with that in mind, right? That if you don't know these folks, that's okay. That's why we're talking about them here. So freaky queers front and center in my life. Um, also a lot of um, sexual freedom work specifically, then sort of in tandem came more anti-racism work, um, immigration rights and migrant rights work and it took me a while to get to the anti-colonialism because I was raised and indoctrinated into colonialism not being that bad because um, I was raised in Puerto Rico. Um, so I was taught that colonies were a thing of the past and a lot of other things I'm sure we can get into today. So, you know, I also want to give a shout out to all the pro-independence movement folks on the island that I neglected as a child that I didn't know about. Um, I also want to shout out someone that I've never actually said out loud. I've had her name in my journals for many years, but Luisa Capetillo was a famous gender and labor rights organizer back on the island. And part of what she was also known for was being an anarchist and having anarchist values, but also being very spiritual at the same time, which for a lot of people doesn't might, might not make sense. So she wasn't necessarily talking about organized religion, but she was talking about spirit. Um, so that feels really important from a gendered perspective. She was also, I, I don't know if, I don't remember if she was the first person or the first woman on the island to wear pants in public, but she was one of the first. And so that struck me when I was a kid. I was like, wow, look at all these things you were doing. Um, after the sort of sexual freedom work and more LGBTQI rights work, um, that's what got me into the anti-violence movement. So, you know, organizations like Insight, Philly Stands Up, um, the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, whether that was through direct participation, like NCAVP, I was a member, um, a part of that org, versus the others where I was just witnessing or in retrospect reading about them. Um, I learned a lot about what anti-violence can be that is not just grounded in an anti-violence domestic violence organization, because a lot of those are directly collaborating with police a lot of the time, or look at police as the primary strategy for addressing partner violence or intimate violence. Um, Windy Road continued into healing justice. I want to shout out Erica, actually, because Incutin is one of the first organizations that I joined where healing justice was so explicitly centered. Um, and, you know, Allied Media Conference, Healing Justice Cohorts, Kara Page, the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective, I, uh, again, all these names that in some way or another have been planted in my experience. And I want to sort of give voice to here. 
And then, and then we get to more explicitly, quote unquote, the abolition and disability justice work that I want to acknowledge that is newer, right? If we're looking at the windy road, that's one of the more recent stops, um, though there were seeds very early on. So I'm thinking of early in college, reading Eli Clare and not integrating it as much as I integrate it now, but knowing, oh, the seeds were there. Um, I had colleagues and peers who are doing a lot of, you know, work with black and pink, work with anti-carceral solutions, seeds planted. I didn't harvest them until many years later, but I'm really glad I did. And I can, in retrospect, recognize them now. Um, and finally, obviously, Mara Mikaba. Um, I'll also shout out Sins Invalid as another organization that does a lot around liberation in general and specifically focuses on disability justice. Um, and my peers and ancestors, right? So thinking about a lineage that stretches back, stretches to the sides and stretches forward. Um, I think how, you know, Erica and Gabe's both mentioned to some extent, some of this is so much clearer when it's grassroots, when it's just what we're living rather than theory or things that we're reading, seeing people organizing around hurricane relief, seeing people organizing around COVID, seeing people organizing around, hey, my friend got kicked out of their home. Do you have a room? Can we put this person in our attic? Like, what can we do? Um, and that feeling like such an embodied version of these things that can often or otherwise sound very theory heavy. Um, they, they don't have to be, right? There's theory, but there's also the practice and, and the marriage of both being the sweet spot. Um, so yeah, those are, the, that's a bit of my lineage and kind of how I came to abolition work. Yes, thank you. Um, I, I love the, the freaky queer. I remember, I think I saw or heard you say that at some point recently in probably that panel through IDHA or something. Um, uh, yes, um, thank you all. Um, so I know this this question I wrestle with often because it's hard to explain. It's hard for me to explain without getting pulled into um, a certain view or a completeness, um, like there is an endpoint or there is an all or nothing um, uh, kind of energy around it. But I want to ask this question purposefully because I have learned more and more as I practice um, in relationship in these my, in these tiny moments between me and someone else or between myself and a select few others, such as with you three today, these small moments, I learn more and more about what abolition means to me and how it shows up in my life and relationship. And so I'm really curious, and Erica, if you could um, lead us off here with this one, what does abolition mean to you? What is the, the, the word, the ideas, the practices, the energy, however it feels right and makes like good sensation in your body, if there are words for it, I would love to learn what those are. Sure. I, I love this question and I hate having to answer it. So I'm like, so many people have answered it and they're brilliant. Um, but I do appreciate being able to articulate what it means to me because I think that's the missing link is how we engage with the ways folks are grappling with these concepts, but actually internalize them and bring them through our actions and our words. Um, so I think that for me, I want words to have meaning again. And so specificity is really important. Um, not that we all have to have the same meaning, but that when we're saying things, it lands somewhere, <laughs> you know? 
Um, and so for me, when I think about abolition, I think really clearly about how are we dismantling these state systems and structures that are reliant on incarceration and surveillance. And when I came into social justice work, I was and kind of in conjunction with pursuing social work, which is hella carceral, um, I was really interested in kind of the continuum of incarceration, right? So uh, I was doing work in jails, in prisons. I was like, therefore I want to look at and see what's happening in schools, what is happening in psychiatric facilities. Um, I never delved into the CPS or Child Protective Services route because I was like, I don't, I can't, I can't look at that up close. Um, but it, it was really looking at the ways that the state has set us up to be um, kind of rooted in, in these systems of carcerality, right? So one of the, the things that I appreciate about my early learning is like, once you dismantle all those things, then what? And so um, really abolition has to be paired with how we are completely transforming the world that we live in. Um, what does it mean to completely uproot colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, queer and transphobia, all types of violence and domination, right? And so I think it's important to look at the macro, like what do we need to do on the macro level, but not conflate that with what we need to do like internally, personally, and interpersonally, because all these things are happening at the same time. And I feel really honored to be in conversation where we can be really attuned to the level at which we're trying to have intervention. Um, and so for me, that, that really looks like, what are the systems and structures that our people need to build out to birth the world that we wanna see when we eliminate state violence? And how do we have to look at the ways we've internalized the state, right? Um, and how do we also normalize our very human responses to our own pain and suffering experiences of violence, right? Um, again, how do we have the messy conversations around like, yes, when I am harmed, sometimes I want revenge or retribution. It doesn't, we have to have space to talk through those things um, because that's real. <laughs> you know, every part of our human experience is real. And I think if we start to kind of repress, suppress, or outsource these kind of less um, presentable parts of ourselves, we're just going to create those systems somewhere in a, a deeper shadow area that is just going to come back and, and really haunt us. Yeah, shout out to that, because I think it's something that we don't, that's, that's where I get that's why I feel frustrated often is that there's this idea, this all or nothing, right? I'm either completely um, against certain things. And so therefore that means that I have to show up perfectly in the opposite, right? So I will never have a sense of wanting revenge or I will never feel vengeful or I will never feel the urge to control someone else's way of showing up in the world, right? Like that, that is not helpful for me and a lot of folks, yet that's how um, we are conditioned to think about um, abolition because, well, if we are continuing to do that, then we're not actually going to, to get to the place where we want to be because we're just continuing to perpetuate the things that uphold it. So, um, I really appreciate you, you bringing that in Erica, because that is important. I think it reminds me of the work that a lot of people are doing, um, 
I want to rephrase. I think that reminds me of the efforts that people are putting forth to humanize um, how oppression shows up um, at these institutional levels, because we often think we, we kind of scapegoat the system, right? Because the system feels like it's not made up of a bunch of people and people's ideas. Um, but by humanizing by humanizing the environments and the institutions and structures and the the things that keep um, the momentum going and keep the kind of like maybe the the oil in the gears of <laughs> oppressive systems um, is us not humanizing what it is. And I I think that helping all of us to be connected to the very human aspects of oppression and therefore liberation helps me to remember, helps me to breathe. And also remember that it is not just, you know, one thing. It is not just showing up in one way. And at the same time, it's important to understand the interconnectedness and how um, we can impact ourselves, one another, and these larger systems outside of us. So I really appreciate that you brought that in because I think a lot of folks forget that they get to do that with themselves, you know, um, and grapple with what that means. Um, and I think part of it is that abolitionist practice um, is not a all or nothing. I keep saying that, and I want to be a little bit more specific by what I mean. Um, it's abolition isn't only when we are bringing down an entire system all at once, right? As if we are, um, you know, for a construction crew trying to demo, demolish a building, right? And create a new one. It's not like we're going in there and putting in all the things in place to bring down the building in one fell swoop. Abolitionist practice to me is in the, the individual moments, each moment and how we are deciding in that moment how to show up in relationship um, in a more liberatory way outside of what we've been taught to do, how we've been taught to police and control and monitor um, and other and shove people to the side um, in service of our own um, feelings of, you know, whatever is whatever is coming up in that moment. And so I think of it in these little bits, what, how can I show up right now in this moment? That is abolitionist practice for me in, in many sense, in many instances. And so I think your point, Erica, helps to bring that in and that we are going to have moments where, yeah, we want revenge or we want to have, um, we have a desire or an urge in the moment to be the one with power and to be able to wield that power, that very human part of us is there too. How can we relate to that part of ourselves and the other folks in the room so that we're all feeling seen, heard, honored, respected, um, and work through those moments together if we need to. Um, and so for me, that's abolitionist practice as well, um, is those tiny moments and humanizing how we show up to that. Um, yeah. Gabes, would you like to, to respond next? what abolition means to you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I really, really love what all of y'all said around, like particularly with what Erica said about, uh, you didn't say this precisely, but what I hear is the, the more than just the dismantling and the destruction, it is the, um, the recreation. And I've always considered abolition to be um, 
a recreating of ecosystems and of structures that are um, more community-based that center interdependence, um, accountability, which I hope that we continue to um, discuss in humanizing ways because of just how much it's been co-opted in many um, in many circles and in many platforms. <laughs> uh, but um, I also think about abolition, and this feels more present with me right now, um, given that I live here in the Philippines and that I don't know if y'all are aware of everything that's happening right now, but there's kind of like a, a distortion of, of history, of the, the retelling of history and how much technology and storytelling has been have been weaponized um, to further fascism, um, fascist governance. And so right now, what I feel like is ab what abolition means is um, to, to tell a different story about healing and safety. And with that comes with telling a story about the, the source of the dis-ease, the source of the violence and the source of the, um, the harm really. And um, I, I suppose I would, it, from a clinical standpoint or from a care standpoint, I would think about like the, the focusing of the story or the source then of just the symptom. There's nothing wrong with focusing on the system. Like we do wanna alleviate the physical manifestations of the infection, of the illness, of the ailment um, for, you know, for daily functioning and all that. And yet if we just put like, this is like a very common metaphor, but if we just put a Band-Aid on it, we don't get to the very root of it. And I feel like abolition tells the story of, hey, we got to get to the root. We got to get to the very, very source of why the, these cycles of, of violence and harm continue. Um, like they, they're uh, being perpetuated. In fact, people profit from, um, and particularly the PIC or the prison industrial complex really profits from um, the continuation of violence. Um, and also all the institutions that are related to the prison industrial complex, that which includes the mental health um, industrial complex and all other institutions that grew alongside with it. Um, and so with that, I feel like um, abolition is the, um, the interference or the disruption of the myths that are told about safety and that it has to be state related, that it has to do with um, policing and um, all state related interventions. And with that, um, what I've been noticing being in the global south is to, um, to create and maintain and sustain. I really like what Robin said about like the, the the, the individual um, sustained wins or um, moments that create a culture or um, maintain a community that that offer that kind of safety that which is um, that I don't want, I like to use the word reliant safety that feels safe to the person and that is a more proactive process and actually attending to what safety means for this individual person or this or this particular community. Um, I've come to realize that as, I mean, I've only been here like six-ish months um, and um, attention is huge. <laughs> attention is so, it, it feels so basic. And yet um, I feel like there's something about presence and attention that, um, that helps me have a more a wider imagination as to what um, like what is it that compels a person to you know to call the cops on this certain situation um, and to really attend to that and to and again to 
help them reimagine what it's like to consider um, creating a pod map instead? Like, what is it like to actually call your neighbors instead? And to even share your own story, my own stories around how the police actually caused more or exacerbated the wound more than anything. Um, so right now, what it feel, what abolition feels like to me is um, is to disrupt the weaponization of storytelling and to um, to find ways to um, to reshape that, to transform that, um, and to even, I keep thinking, um, I don't know what's what's coming through, but like, I feel like it's not gonna be in English most of the time and that being okay, it's not gonna be in the colonizer's tongue. Um, perhaps it's also in, in imagery and in metaphor, in music. Oh my gosh, like the creativity and the art and just how much that disarms an audience, a community. Um, I've also learned that the power of cultural workers, of the artists who are already, and the youth-led one, or the youth, uh, the climate activists, the youth-led organizations. Um, I feel like it's also an expansion of imagination too, of what it looks like to have the, the culture of interdependence. And I also find it important to have, um, like when one has an abolitionist, um, manifesto philosophy or um, ideology, I think that the vision has to be global and the organizing has to be local. So um, that's what abolition means to me in this very moment. Yes. Yes. Thank you. There's so many things that I'm like, yes, um, accountability, pod mapping, global, like there's so many things that are, that are, you know, key and central for for me and I think all of us here are saying it in different ways today. So thank you for that. Ida, please let us know um, what abolition means to you. So many good things said already, which is always exciting to see how we build on each other and what extra nuggets each of us can bring. So I, I want to acknowledge a lot of overlap already from what I'm hearing, right? This idea of divesting from and dismantling systems, building things. I'm a big proponent of the combo pack and multi-pronged approaches. There's no one strategy that's going to do, frankly, anything. We have to always be thinking about all the multiple ways that we can show up because that to me is also part of things like disability justice. We have to think of all the different gifts that we have that we can contribute to the world to make it better. So it's not just, oh, can you write really good grand proposals? That's the only thing we need. Or can you go out on the street and fight? That's the only thing we need. We have to frankly acknowledge the reality that we have multiple things to offer and that we are already using them. Sometimes we're just not giving credit to them as being part of the change work. So even things like parenting and you know the, the work of raising children is often, unless it's profitable to the state, is not considered part of change making. And it, it absolutely is. So that combo pack, you know, idea is very present for me. Um, for me, it's also about divesting from punishment explicitly, and obviously incarceration as a tool, but I like to bring up punishment because it's sometimes more accessible to people that are not very knowledgeable about the prison industrial complex. Most of us know what punishment is on some level or have been punished in some way. And so that 
to me feels like a good entry point in these conversations. So divesting from punishment and investing in consequence rather than the punishment piece. And to me, the difference between those two in short is that punishment is about causing pain and using that as a deterrent for some kind of behavior that we consider bad or not useful. And it's usually divorced from the actual behavior we're trying to change. It's more about inflicting pain and controlling, whereas a consequence is more directly tied to what happened that we're trying to modify. It doesn't rely primarily on causing pain, though pain could be a side effect of it. But there's the idea that we want to reduce pain, not inflict it. Um, and so to me, abolition relates a lot to that idea of punishment and, and divesting from it, like I said. Um, building a world that does not systematically deny pleasure and care. Um, and that's where the, the sex educator piece comes in. There's so much that through incarceration yields a lack of care, a lack of pleasure, whether we're talking about people in prisons that are sort of formally recognized as incarceration, or we're talking about people in nursing homes where they have no privacy, where they are at sometimes elevated risks of being abused, where they have very little access to things that will give them pleasure. And there's a denial even of their humanity because well, you're old, you know? And so looking at all the different types of incarceration, not just the ones that seem most obvious. So again, there we're talking about, you know, psychiatric incarceration, wards, um, group homes, even at times. So um, that's kind of the, the more systematic piece of denying pleasure and care. For me, abolition is also related to dismantling and divesting from the cops in our own heads and in our own hearts, because we have, most of us have been well-trained in a system of punishment and carcerality if we're living in this current moment. So it takes work just as it took work to get there, it's gonna take work to undo that. And so we need to contend with not just this, again, this big system outside of us, but also how have we internalized it? How do we push people away when maybe we should be connecting to them? How are we lacking in imagination when we're thinking of fixing a community, a community safety issue? Um, and a lot of this doesn't boil down to logic. That's another thing that I've found and why I really appreciate, Gabe's what you mentioned about art. Um, art can be such a shortcut to feelings and ideas that takes away our defenses or, or sort of moves through our armor. Because when we look at quote unquote, the logic and the facts, quote unquote, again, a lot of these things around prison systems are not necessarily safety inducing. They're not actually creating greater safety. They're creating profit for a certain people. They're creating a particular version of the world. But if we're looking at, does this make our community safer? Not really. Investing in police, not really. And so this is not actually about facts. And I know that I used to think, oh, we, we just gotta get the facts out there. We just gotta let people know what the truth is. No, <laughs> like that's not actually gonna change people's minds. But if we look at, the feelings, the language, the ideas, the embodied experience of feeling safe or unsafe, I've found that that has more traction um, because so often when people heavily invest in systems of punishment, they're trying to protect something. And if we can think about what they're protecting, what they're feeling about it, we can have a bit of a different conversation that's not just about, well, this is how much it costs to have a person in jail versus out on the street. Like one of the things that we know is that if we invested in 
housing a lot of unhoused populations, that is way cheaper than all the other things that we're doing to try to manage like the homelessness crisis. But we're not doing that. How interesting, right? That to me is an example of how this is not just about cold, hard cash and facts. It's not. Because if it were, we would be doing very different things right now. So we have to look at where we're actually getting stuck, where we're actually needing to, to nudge a little bit more. Um, so yeah, all of that together is, is kind of what I see abolition as, this divesting from certain things, investing or reinvesting in others, this act of creation, this act of connection, and looking at how the systems of, again, denial of pleasure and care manifest in the micro as well as the macro. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's uh, so much of that is really important. Like it's easy, it's easier to to kind of go and and be it allegiant to what we're used to using as like fact and research and all of these things, and really um, not not learn from so many other folks in different ways of of learning. Like what is going on and how can we address what is happening and what we all need. Um, <clears throat> Before we move on to the next um, question, are there any other thoughts or things that um, feel need to be said about this before we move on? I am so grateful to be in this conversation. My mind is churning. I'm so excited. Um, I think one piece I wanted to thread is just the, the policing that happens in movement and in movement spaces on behalf of abolition. I think it's funny. It's it's actually deeply painful, but I'm like, what are we doing exactly? Um, and you know, just that contradiction and how, to me, that really speaks to the healing justice piece of the intervention, because in this conversation around safety, it's like, yeah, white people have have determined that they're unsafe because everybody else is alive, right? Um, and so if we're not if we are not kind of determining safety collectively, that's like rooted in liberation actually. And if we're also not creating the conditions where we're able to heal and transform trauma, like in an ongoing collective way, um, then we are definitely destined to create more of the same. And so I do think it's really important for us to be in some of the messier spaces as we talk about what it means to be survivors who are trying to move forward safety strategies while also tending to trauma, right? And so, you know, I, I feel like recently some things have come up for me and I'm like, am I unsafe or am I uncomfortable, right? And there are certain things that I'm healing where I ask that question at least annually, but I'm now looking at some harm that happened five years ago and I'm like, no, I don't, I'm not actually unsafe now. Right, but there is discomfort that's coming up. And I, I don't know that we have the permission or the space or folks who are skilled enough to hold some of those nuances because safety is also being, every, everything's weaponized. Healing justice is weaponized, transformative justice is weaponized. Um, and so again, I, I love how layered this conversation is because there's so many entry points and then there's like infinite number of interventions that are required to make this thing actually a reality. Hmm. Can we go there? Can we go into all of these things being weaponized? Um, because I feel 
like that is where the the complexity and nuance lie and also the need for responsibility, accountability, clarity, um, because especially when we think of how we are then putting this into practice with um, clients and community. So in a therapy setting, in a clinical setting, healing setting, um, I would love to learn how you all experience the weaponization and then how you, how you untangle that, how you make a shift from this weaponized version, or even, you know, a, a certain version of what it means to show up as a quote, healing justice oriented therapist or a, um, you know, abolitionist focused therapist, right? Like, what does this mean? in the moment with clients and also as you're considering how your own word I use healership evolves over time in your relationship with your clients and and community as well because you know it's hard it's hard for me at least to like <laughs> just remain in the silos like well I'm over here I'm this abolitionist healer but over here I'm not like I that's hard for me. So I would love to go into that messiness of how this all shows up in your, in your work with folks, um, the weaponization of it, and then also how you do something different with it, something more liberatory, how you liberate it from being weaponized. <sighs> Let's see, Ida, do you want to kick us off this time? Sure. Um, and I'm excited to be a little bit briefer so we can go more back and forth because I, I want us to kind of be in dialogue with each other. Um, Erica, as you were talking, the sentence that came to me was that superficial understandings of abolition just always circle back to domination. Um, and that domination is a creative shapeshifter. And, and in part, that's also why we have to be creative and shapeshifty and pivoting because you know, that's a lot of what the weaponization does. It's I'm going to use this word and I'm going to twist it or transform it. And I'm pro transformation in a lot of ways. And when it's in service of shitty values, not so much. Um, and so even, even when we talk about jargon and defining words to me, I'm not against jargon, but jargon as a tool for clarity in a field is different than jargon for obstruction and for obscuring a message. And so if someone is talking to me or if I'm talking to someone, if I'm using a lot of jargon, I wanna make sure that that is in service of them better understanding something rather than them having to Google 20 words in order to have a sentence understood. And so that's something that comes up in, in um, clinical spaces for me where if I'm sharing or I'm educating, doing psychoeducation, I want to make sure that I'm using language that is as accessible as possible. And what that means is sometimes I'll explain proactively. Sometimes I'll check in. How is this landing? What are you hearing me say? What are you getting from this? That will give me insight into where maybe I have to go back and, and you know, adjust something or give a little extra clarity in community. And in, in the clinical room too, if I have a client where they come and they're throwing like 20,000 jargon words of pop psychology to me, I'm like, okay, on one hand, frankly, I find it annoying and that's my shit and I own it. I also have curiosity, like, wow, you have found so many words that feel important to you. That is important for me to know and hold. And if there's a little piece that's annoyed because 
maybe I'm like, oh, pop psychology. I wonder what you've been exposed to that's wrong that I'm going to have to help you correct here. That I want to minimize as much as possible. And I want to really lean into the curiosity. And I also do that by asking them, right? And asking them, hey, how, what does that mean to you, right? You're talking about codependency. You know, tell me more about where you learned it. Tell me more about why that matters to you, how you see it in your life, which also to me disrupts the idea of the clinician as the expert in the room. Um, to me, abolition relates a lot to depedestaling. And not that we don't want to acknowledge when someone has more information about something, but that we don't want to solely prioritize that or single ways of knowing as, ah, you have ultimate truth because you're an expert TM. Um, so in the room, a lot of collaboration, a lot of asking questions, a lot of very direct meta communication about what we're doing. Um, I, in the first session, I'm very clear about what my relationship is to the state, to confidentiality, to mandated reporting, to times of crisis, and to being in community together. Because I, I feel like some of us, especially social workers, are trained to talk about the legalities and liabilities. We're not as much trained or even encouraged to think about how do we deal when we're in the same space together? How do we want to actually connect or not in those moments? And so to me, a way of thinking outside of the state systems and outside of liability and more in a community mindedness place is to talk about the, the first time, like, hey, we might be in the same Facebook group. We might be at the same club, you know, dancing to the Bad Bunny song. Like, what are we going to do then? And how do we want to deal with it from a place of care and from a place of knowing that we do have a power difference? I have the power to institutionalize you. I don't take that lightly. And I don't want to do that, but it would be silly for me to pretend like I don't have that power, right? So equalizing power does not mean ignoring the power that actually exists, right? That's white shit. That's like, oh, but I don't see my power. I don't see that the, we're, we're the same. No, we're not. In many ways we are. And in some important ways that privilege me, we are not the same. And that's why it's my responsibility to bring it up. See, I'm getting... I'm getting, I'm getting spiked. I'm getting agitated, um, yes. which, you know, is, is good. Um, and another piece that I'll add in there is that I don't use punishment in my practice. Um, when we're doing things between sessions or when I'm asking clients to do homework or do an experiment, I'm very clear that this is not a demerit-based system. I don't want you to do this out of shame. I don't want you to do this out of a fear that I'm going to, you know, boot you as a client or I'm going to hate you. I want you to do this because you have some investment in it. And if some of that is relational investment, like you want me to be in good relationship with you, we can use that. But I don't want it to be shame. I don't want it to be a fear of me or what I would do. Um, I want it to be a different thing. And so I, I'm also very clear about that when we're thinking about sort of assignments. Um, I know that I moved a little bit away from the weaponization and more into the piece of the question that's about how you do it in your clinical approach, because I could say a lot about the weaponization and I wanna, I wanna hold that and feel into it before I keep talking. So I will pass the baton on to someone else and then maybe I'll circle back. Yeah, I, I think that's fine with me. That's great. I mean, I, you said like the power is there. You have the power to institutionalize. You have the power to do all kinds of things. And it's not just acknowledging that that power exists, but that you could exercise it at any moment at your discretion. Right. And I think that that's a lot of 
right? That shows up in punishment for not doing assignments. <laughs> that shows up in comments around, well, if you don't come, if you miss a session, if you miss too many sessions in a row, that means you're not invested and I'm done working with you. Um, that can look so many different ways. And so if we're not, it's one thing to acknowledge, it's very important to acknowledge that this power exists and it exists even outside of the, the hour that you've scheduled with this person, it exists if you see them in the club, right? It exists if you see them you know, hear about them from someone else, right? You have that power wherever you go and it's in your discretion when to use that power, right? The state has given you that power. <clears throat> the state has power over you that if you don't use that power, you will get punished, right? And so like, there's this complicated web around that power. And I think that's really, really important to talk about because so much of abolition is practice when we're experimenting, when I'm experimenting with other um, mental health, you know, state sanctioned mental health providers, we work a lot around that. Like, how do we work in that space? And with that, do we actually say these things, this permission of actually saying the things and doing and working this power thing out with the clients that we're working with um, and how that is so much part of healing justice and so much a part of providing trauma-informed care, providing care that is rooted in um, a sense that this is for the client, like this is giving healing and therapy and all of this back to the client. I think that's a really important part of it. So thank you for sharing, for sharing that. Um, who would like to respond next, either respond to what Ida said or the question that I proposed? Feels energized. I can keep this brief too, um, with regard to the weaponization. Um, so when I hear the weaponization or the co-opting of a abolitionist um, transformative justice concept or practice, I often think about the capitalist impulse to want to profit. But more than that, I also hear the, um, when I hear about weapon, when I hear the word weapon or just weaponry, I think about the its origins of trying to maintain a social order, which is a delusion. It's a capitalist white supremacist delusion of trying to maintain that social order where there are certain people who are at the top and certain people at the bottom. And in order to maintain that, one uses weapons. And so, um, and maybe this is more present to me considering all the gun violence that's happening as well. But um, with regard to, 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 you know, to the clinical world, to clinical care, um, how I contend with it or how I confront it is really a, as somebody who does have the degree, has the training, has the license, has the title. I just, um, I address the complicity um, at, at the outset with the client or with the folks that I work with. It's not um, if, but how. I am complicit and how I benefit from their trauma, how I benefit from their tears. And so it's a very explicit um, onboarding process, which Ida already mentioned, and that's um, a, a more extensive informed consent process. And yeah, just to keep it brief, like addressing the complicity and also having the uh, the emotional capacity and muscle to stomach that as well, that um, that I have power and how that also looks like, like as a therapist of color, who's possibly like working with um, white cis therapists as well, and how to complexify power dynamics within the um, 
the therapeutic or care context um, or organizing context as well. Um, and to not, uh, and, and to not, as Ida said earlier, like to, to not be dismissive of the, the power dynamics because that can be really, really dangerous. Um, but yeah, at this point, it just, it, it feels like um, growing that capacity to address and contend with and understand like my proximity to power and to also um, work alongside my own uh, co-organizers, those who are also in clinical settings or care settings to, to not also be overcome by their guilt of their complicity because that happens all the time. Like there is a, there's such a thing as being transformed by shame because if not for shame and guilt, then we wouldn't be compelled to change. But there's a type of shame and guilt that kind of like debilitates them a little bit, not a little bit, a lot. And so what is it like to, um, to, to be in the building of their capacity um, and understanding their proximities to power and also oppression? Um, so that's what I think about. Yes, yes. Oh, Erica, I want to leave space for you to, to say whatever you need to say in this moment. Yeah, so, so rich. Um, you know, I think in not only in a clinical context, but I do a lot of work outside of the clinical context, and it almost doesn't matter because I still have LCSW behind my name. And even if I'm not operating as a therapist, people, you're a therapist, you know what I mean? Um, where everywhere that you go. And even if you're not mandated to operate in that role, you're still connected to the state. And so just really remembering that the medical industrial complex is the prison industrial complex. And inside of that, some of the powers that we have, we use subversively and unapologetically to help our people, right? Whether it's like, writing gender affirming letters, which why do we have to do that <laughs> for people to get what they need, right? That's, that's trash. So you asked me to do a letter, absolutely going to do it. You know what I mean? Um, whether that's about working with people to have a container to talk about trauma, abuse, and violence in ways where we don't even have to worry about having to report. Um, and thinking about when we take risk and, you know, really challenge some of the ways that we've been trained that actually aren't about the law. There's like, there's a law and then there's a fear and anxiety that's put upon practitioners, right? So I love when folks are like, hey, I'm a lawyer, let's break this down. A lot of the stuff that y'all think you're not allowed to do is not true, right? <laughs> and like, we can just start there. If you're not trying to be like a whole revolutionary, you can just like understand the law and understand the kind of bounds of that. Um, I think the piece that, I, that I'm seeing in my clinical practice and also in movement and community space um, are therapists who actually are kind of absorbing popular language right now around transformative justice, abolition and healing justice and misapplying it. And, and actually not coming from a place of malice, but sometimes people think that they're helping to evolve a thing, but they're really rebranding it and becoming an Insta practitioner that's a whole other conversation. I'm not going to go down that, that rabbit hole, but it's a problem. It's a whole problem. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually seeing folks who are survivors getting kind of bound up in either processes with therapists or TJ practitioners where they're experiencing harm in a so-called TJ process because people don't know what they're talking about. And so I, I don't know how we get back to the need not, not we don't need to like be building a friggin' world of experts but like 
can we get back to like learning things? Learning is important. Learning in a community is important. Having elders, whether by age or by like time in the work, important. Having a council of folks you can be in conversation with about what's coming up for you in the work. I think we need to, to recenter that and, you know, the time that it takes to learn things. Like the practitioner I am now, very different than 10 years ago, very different than 20 years ago when I started. And I, I laugh at myself 20 years ago because I literally thought I knew all the things and I did not. And the little bit that I knew, I was not always working with it as best I could. Um, but I, I am concerned because I'm hearing more people who are working with therapists who, who actually are really doing some problematic things in the context of therapy using this language and these these ideologies and one example is like encouraging people people to engage in process with violent people under the guise of like well you're not going to call the police so that's abolition it's like whoa whoa there's a whole bunch of steps involved and i think we need to i, I don't know how many more i don't know if we need more therapists that are trying to do abolition to be honest and to just be controversial i'm like we need to find our lane and what I'm, what I'm more concerned with, in particular with the network, is like, there are these real obvious ways that we could do with the state. If we just focused on those, maybe we could let the abolition people do what they do, you know? Um, but some of us need to, to back away from this conversation. And, and I'm saying that as someone who, I was an abolitionist before I got to the field. I came to the field because I was like doing abolition work and I was like, yikes, there's a lot of trauma and I am not equipped to deal with the trauma. Now, social work school didn't really help with that, but it did give me some frameworks that were useful. Um, and then I continued my learning. Yeah, I'm wondering if we could take a couple of minutes to each of you expand on, on something. Erica, I wanna learn a little bit more about what you mean, what you specifically mean when you say that <clears throat> We don't necessarily need more therapists who abolitionist therapists and pick a stay in a lane. Um, it feels familiar, feels connected th to things that Gabe's you have said around, you know, in a in a liberatory world there are no therapists. Um, we don't exist anymore. Um, and I know Ida, you've said similar things in the past as well around that. So I would love to connect some dots there on what that means, especially for folks who um, are therapists and want to be more oriented towards liberatory or abolitionist um, practice in terms of like therapeutic work. Well, what does that mean? So I would love to, to dive into that over the next couple of minutes, if you all are okay with that. Because I know there's some there's a lot of um, complexities and ethical dilemmas as well that I know we want to talk about within that context, which I'm sure um, kind of folds into it. Some stuff to kick us off. Um, Eric, as I was listening, one of the things that I was screaming in my head was humility. Can we please have a little bit more humility? Dear God, because there's a lot of and again, you know, capitalism globally, but especially the United States tries to encourage a lot of us to present as experts, even if we don't actually have that much knowledge, because expertise is seen as the thing that makes you real and valuable and important. And we are less taught to be in a kind of student mindset or a learner mindset or an evolving mindset. And to me, when I see folks that are very entrenched and, and very committed to being experts, that's an immediate red flag for me. So I'm like, mm, <laughs> 
know. I don't know. I have questions. I have at least questions. And so this idea of, you know, how do we actually do it and what are the messinesses in that? Humility to me feels really important. And not humility that's about denying information and degrees or whatever, but about being humble that we don't actually know everything, that perception changes a lot, that we will change over time, and that we have to build in for that, that we have to be aware that things will change and that we will change. So rather than being very static or very binary about things, what would it look like to? learn to surf, like to be more in the flow of things while still having values that, that are important and grounded. Um, the other piece here too is to me, so much of it is about collaborating. We don't all have to do everything, but do we know the people that are doing the different things that we are not doing, right? And to me, another piece that comes into this is what makes you happy? What makes me joyful? Because sometimes I have been caught in the trap of like, what's the most important thing for movement? Fred, you're not that fucking important. Like in the large scheme of things, you are a single human. Can a single human do a lot? Oh yes, we know that. Very good things and very bad things and everything in between. But part of my humility is knowing that I am not the most important person in the world. And so, you know, if we're gonna encourage people to do things that are challenging, we don't need them to just be suffering all the time. Again, that's another capitalist logic. That's also very based on a lot of Christian religions where it's like, you must suffer in order to get dignity, in order to get pleasure, in order to get nice things, you have to earn it through pain. And I don't believe that. And a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people wouldn't believe it if they had permission to not believe it. And so to me, a part of this is, thinking, what am I good at? What am I liking to do? What are the gifts that bring me some nourishment so that I can continue to do them? So if therapy is bringing me joy, great. Let's keep moving in that direction because that is, that is something that is useful. But if at some point I realize or decide therapy is not actually <laughs> bringing me joy, let's see what else could be at that intersection of bringing me some kind of nourishment and also being a change-making, you know, part of the world. Um, and I'm glad that people were bringing in again, artists and storytellers, because I'm also an artist and a storyteller, even though I didn't say that at the beginning. And I feel like there's a fear that I've sometimes had. And a lot of people have had around me of, if I am not doing the most dangerous movement work, if I'm not doing the most intense thing, am I actually contributing? And that's a false binary again. And so to me, again, the ideas of humility, the ideas of being able to center care and pleasure rather than pain and suffering are really, really tied to figuring out what lane should we be in and for how long and for what reasons. So I'll pass it off to other folks to contribute. Yes, thank you. Gabes, is there anything you feel led to add to this part of the discussion, this response? Mm -hmm. um, I think about the, I wanna address like the tendency uh, to, especially in public platforms, the tendency to pedestalize therapy as the best um, form of care and healing when really it isn't. In fact, I think, Robin, you mentioned this earlier that I said before that my hope as 
uh, a therapist with abolitionist values is that eventually my role or this this role is going to be unusable or obsolete because that would mean that uh, communities neighborhoods friendships um, are going to are the ones who are showing up for one another in addressing and um, preventing harm and violence and abuse um, and so with that, I, I often think about, I, I often address to those who want to get into the field and who are already in the field, who want to um, nurture their abolitionist and practice their abolitionist values is to, um, to imagine and also practice what it's like to deinstitutionalize um, mental health interventions. What is it like to, again, like decenter therapy as the a source of safety and of care and of addressing trauma. What is it like to, and I'm thinking more uh, logistically, like what is it like to offer trauma-informed um, training and sit-ins, like teach-ins rather, um, teach-ins in organizing spaces, especially during the pandemic when there was like a rise of organizing, but at the same time, um, as Erica mentioned earlier, like there has been policing within these these contexts. And so what is it like to offer um, to offer one's training and education of trauma informed training and education um, and having to address harm within these circles? What is it like to offer um, de-escalation risk assessment tools and resources to all the um, to maybe actions and, and rallies and, and protests, more expressionist tactics when it comes to organizing. And in, even in education spaces, like of course, like part of um, having, um, of, of addressing um, carceral logic within the mental health industry is to also address um, how it shows up in education. So what is it like to expose and challenge and reject uh, modalities, therapeutic modalities that implicitly or explicitly show punitive values, um, punishment-based values that uphold punishment as a solution to changing behavior. So for instance, like operant behavior um, conditioning by Skinner, just a lot of a lot in that world. So what is it like to um, to address that within the classroom, address that whenever you notice it within um, your peer circles? Um, and I would also highlight the importance of pod mapping too, um, or if, um, or maybe like um, actually like sitting down and asking oneself like who are the people who I would call um, outside of the state to um, to be of service to me to intervene whenever I'm vulnerable to harm or where, whenever I'm susceptible to causing harm. Um, so yeah, so those are the things that come to mind. Yes, thank you. Um, I'll put some links in the show notes to some of these things that have been referenced, especially pod mapping. So I think that's an important one. Um, it's been kind of brought up a couple of different times, either directly or indirectly, um, having those community um, members um, that can that can be available. So thank you. Um, Erica, is there anything else you'd like to add to what you were what you had so beautifully brought up before? Yeah, you know. I, I have such a conflicted relationship with this moment where people are just like, therapy is the answer to all the things because it's helpful. This shit is helpful. And also in this conversation, we're talking about radical politicized BIPOC practice. You know, it's like, it is useful. And so that's that's my, my angle right now is like, 
people should have access to an abundance of healing tools and resources. And unfortunately, our field has co-opted, stolen, and absorbed our cultural and spiritual traditions to transform suffering and violence and trauma and grief. So, so that's, that's how we got here. Um, therapy is one of many tools, and it's not always going to be the, the tool that gets people where they're trying to go. Um, but it's what we have. And so at the end of the day, how do we sit inside of that contradiction, right? And how do we encourage people, you know, as Ida lifted up, like, what is your particular contribution in this lifetime to this dumpster fire that <laughs> we're, we're living through, right? Um, and in, in our practice, I think we need to like make, I think we need to make revolution irresistible and sexy, but not so sexy that then people are just going along for a ride that's not rooted in like authenticity and people's actual skill and values. And I do think, you know, because I came to this work via harm reduction, we really have to get super practical about what we need in the short term while we're holding this long-term vision and, and really be able to move between both of those spaces um, because that's what our ancestors have always had to do. It's not like if we go, you know, to Gabe's point earlier, you can't romanticize the past. You know, we've always had practitioners who were in some kind of role, right, where, where they were helping to transform trauma. And I'm sure abuse and all kinds of harm happened then too because humans are humaning. Um, but we have to get more clear about the interventions we're trying to make. And I think as we do that, we're gonna be able to build more power and we're gonna be able to build like a critical mass of folks who are not only experimenting, dismantling, building out new things, but also transforming every single layer <laughs> on a cellular level of what it means to be free. Erica, I want to add a, a quick thing to what you said. Again, this idea of zooming in, zooming out, zooming in, zooming out. And to Gabe's point earlier about storytelling and sort of the twisting of history, the, again, zooming in, zooming out of history, because it's not great if we are under the impression that we have to just learn everything before we can intervene, because that's not real. That doesn't exist. That's also false binary. But also back to the humility point, can you like look at what people are doing before you try to do a new thing and reinvent the wheel? Because that's just not efficient. <laughs> and it's so often not, that, that's where so much gets lost in translation, where people are like taking concepts that they heard once or that they superficially understand to try to build something where there's a bunch of folks who've already done it. And it's not like any of us are immune to this, but generally there's a couple of demographic factors that you know, we can look at like, hmm, whose stuff is being stolen? Whose interventions are being taken? Even if we just look at therapy, so many of the approaches that are very popular and in many ways effective right now are repackaged like global South shit. And, you know, that's, that's not new, but we gave it a new name, right? And so there's this piece of, you know, building community and community memory and having the humility to pause and slow down before we try to fix something to see what has been tried before, be curious about what has happened and not just in our own country or not, again, Gabe, to your point about being global, can we pause before we try to rush into intervene and do more harm in, in, in that movement? 
Um, so again, more shout outs to collaboration and global perspectives and not thinking that you're the shit necessarily. Yes, absolutely. I have so enjoyed our time together today, and I know we could probably talk for many more hours, um, but we can't at this moment. We have to um, move move on with our day and our evenings. Um, I really appreciate all of you being here. Um, before we close out, um, I, I want to leave some space. If there are any final things that, that any one of you feel needs to be said, um, even if it's a word or a sound or a movement we need to make together that feels right, I want to give some space to that. So if that is present for you, please just feel free to, to let us know in these last couple of moments together. It's really simple. What comes to mind is that we have what it takes and that we have been what we've been looking for and waiting for. Mm. And we have what it takes. Yes. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you all so much. Um, I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with um, uh, appreciation for knowing that you are all in the world doing so many wonderful life affirming um, actions and taking good care of yourselves and others around you um, and for being part of a collective of folks really um, dedicated, devoted to um, to what liberation means, um, to a liberatory way of, of being and caring um, for ourselves, one another, and the earth. Um, I appreciate all of your voices, your presence, your smiles. Um, thank you so much. And I look forward to um, continuing to be in community together um, globally and um, yeah, just call forward more opportunities to, to talk, to work together. So thank you once again for being here today. Before we go, I want to make sure you all know something really cool we have coming up. In between seasons one and two, we have a few bonus episodes that we are releasing. These episodes are conversations I'm having with some close friends and kin of mine about how we integrate and create liberatory relationship with one another. So these episodes are going to be really fun behind the scenes, getting a little vulnerable, sharing some real moments with y'all um, about how it goes. How does it work? How do you do this in relationship with other people? And really integrate some of these values into an actual relationship with someone and um, having it feel more aligned with the types of relationships and life and community that you want overall. So we are really happy to share these with you. You will see them um, popping up on uh, Spotify um, in between seasons one and two. So you don't have to do anything extra. You'll just see them coming up. Please take a listen and we would love to hear from you as well about how you integrate these practices into your relationships. And yeah, thank you for sharing that space with us. and. Uh, and um, holding us in um compassion um and uh in humility and respect for the process so liberation labs radio is created and produced by me robin morning and ali owens on the ancestral and unceded land of the arapaho ute and cheyenne nations aka northern colorado 
If you love our show, please, please like and subscribe and also share it with all of your friends and your loved ones. And additionally, if you want to become a supporter of the show, you may do so. And all of our supporters will get seasonal goodies, such as a zine, which will have a lot of great content, resources, art, articles, other things that we think will be really supportive of each season. So that's included. In addition, we'll have other resources, an opportunity for a Q&A um, and other goodies. We'll see, we'll see what comes with each season. You can do that by going to our website, almaniralabs.com forward slash podcast, and you'll see a link to support our show. You can also support the show right from Spotify if you would like to do that. Thank you again for being here, and we'll see you next time.